All right, Mark chapter 1, let's get into it. Mark chapter 1, we're going to be hovering around verses 12 and 13. I'm going to start off with a really weird question, okay? Do you ever marvel at the television remote? I mean, you are linked in wirelessly to hundreds of options. That's pretty amazing, right? Do you ever stand in front of your microwave oven and just with your mouth open go, I, I, I can't believe it? There's no heat and I'm getting warm food. Do, do you ever um, take a CD before you put it in your CD plater and, and just marvel that there's music on that plastic thing? Or take out your cell phone and just kind of go, oh, God. I can go anywhere I want, see anything. Isn't that amazing? No, you don't. No, nobody in here marvels at the microwave. You don't care. And I, that's my point. My point is there's all these wonderful things that have happened over the last 50 years and we're just so used to them, right? I actually woke up last night thinking this thought. This is a really strange, so I love you, so you, you'll be kind. But I woke up thinking, how would I explain the inventions of the last 50 years to my grandfather who's been dead since 1963? He was born in 1889, died when I was like three years old, and I would tell him about a remote control or a smartphone. It would blow his mind, and you don't even care. It doesn't even register to you. And I use that to illustrate a point because we're in the middle of the opening sentences of Mark's gospel that talk about God who came and became a man. Nothing is more mind-blowing than God who always was and always will be, who formed everything that we know in existence and holds it together by the power of his word, decided to come down and take on flesh. How do you get your head around that? And yet we're going to read it and have read it and you just skip over it. Got it? Next sentence, right? Isn't that weird that we can get so comfortable with these amazing things and, and not even spend time with it? So I made a little observation of myself this week that um, whenever I study about Jesus and probably when I teach about Jesus, I lean into the deity that he's God. And I talk about those things of his, his majesty and mystery, but I very seldom spend a lot of time talking about his humanness. You know, just dwelling on the fact that he was fully God and fully man. With all of that means, his ability to breathe and eat and sleep and grow tired and, and deal with the things that, that we deal with. If you're like me at all, if, that, if you relate to that at all, then this passage is going to be helpful for us today to appreciate the humanness of Christ and, and possibly the most, one of the most clearest anyway ways that God could ever, ever say to people that he loves us is that he would become like us. They would take on flesh and, and, and do that very thing. Obviously, the crucifixion screams that affection, but just the fact that he would enter into this like us is an amazing truth. And I don't want it to be missed, just the fact that you have heard it so much in your life. It should, it should amaze you. It should marvel us. So um, I'm going to rewind a little bit before we get in our text today. I want to remind you of the last point I made last week, that Jesus is a surprising Savior. And, and just as a reminder, the reasons why we said that is because the text tells us he was from Nazareth and kings don't come from Nazareth. Nazareth is a nobody place. Nobody cares kind of place. Kings come with nobility and a lot of trumpet fare and a lot of people recognizing you. Kings come in robes and recognition. And this, this king, our king, he came obscure. He came humble. He came as a servant. No one saw that coming. He's a surprising savior to come like the way he did. 
We also said that he's the rising Savior because of the baptism, even the event that's going on with John the Baptist. Here he is, John the Baptist, the most popular guy in town at this point. Thousands of people are coming out to the river to be baptized because he's preaching a message of of repentance. And and people are flooding to the waters to to be baptized. And here comes Jesus. We've got a problem there because Jesus doesn't need repentance. There's no sin in Christ. Why would he respond to a call to be baptized? Well, we talked about that a little bit. One is it's obvious that there's this kind of a commissioning of his earthly ministry, but probably more poignant to us is that he came in those waters to associate with what they meant in our behalf. In other words, he was, he was truly here for us that he came to save us from the wrath of God that John was screaming about in the desert. Like, you people need to repent because you sinned against a holy God. And he gets in the waters to say, I'm here for that. That's why I came, because of God's wrath being stored up against all this stuff. He came for, um, to put himself in, in, in a position of being guilty, although he wasn't guilty, for our salvation, not his with an intention to go to the cross to die. That's why, that's why he came. But I, I used one more word to describe the kind of the, the surprisingness of Jesus, and that was that he came um, to sympathize with our weaknesses, to understand, to feel it. God is all-knowing. He could probably have just thought it. He got in it to feel it and get close to our weaknesses. I, I believe that maybe no story or event in Jesus' life makes that more clear than the story that we're looking at today. In, in the Gospel of Mark that we're looking at, two simple verses, although Matthew and Luke expound upon this temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, but nevertheless, here we have this wonderful depiction of God the Son coming so close to man in his condition that he can truly and fully sympathize with what we deal with. Somebody in here should go amen to that. Because that's the essence of what it is for God to demonstrate his love and compassion towards us on our need, is that he would do that very thing. So I want to read these two verses. Um, the shortest account, by the way, in all the gospels about this temptation. And I still think it's full of significant things for us to unpack. So we'll try to do that today. Let's, let's read this together, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let me pick apart some words here, because I think there's some things to make clear. Um, Mark is is kind of, in fact, the word immediately happens, I think, 40-some times in in Mark's depiction of what's going on in the gospel of Mark. In Mark's mind, everything is right now, right now, right now. And as soon as this event in the the baptismal waters happened for Jesus, the heavens open up, the voice comes down, immediately from Mark's vantage point, Jesus now is flushed into the wilderness to deal with this tempter, to deal with Satan, right? The text tells us that he he was driven out, Uh, immediately drove out. Now that, at first glance, kind of paints a wrong picture. It, it almost sounds as if that Jesus has to be told to do something he really didn't want to do. Like it was coming, and uh, I know you don't want to be there, but you're going to have to go, and got the big shove. That's not the implication of this phrase. Although the phrase means forced out, the implication of the phrase is simply that God's spirit moved in Jesus so deeply, so passionately, that Jesus couldn't help himself. He had to go. God was doing something. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew why he was there. At that moment, as soon as God recognized him, son of God, he was compelled. He was forced 
to go into the wilderness. The second thing I want you to notice is the timing of this whole thing. It says here in verse 12 that the Spirit immediately drove him out. Like I said before, Mark is the one guy who continually puts these things in fast-paced terms. There is no lag in the action from, from uh, Mark's vantage point. Um, and he is driven right out. As soon as he hears the approval of the Father, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, he's out to be tempted. And I think there's a point to be made here. And I don't want it to spiritualize it too much, but I think it's obvious. And that is, we are never more vulnerable to Satan's accusations and attacks than when we're on a spiritual high. It sounds backwards. It, it, we, we see Satan as, as the hyena who's waiting for a crippled animal to just lay down so he can take us. Satan doesn't bother with people who don't bother with God. If you're unmotivated and you're not in the scriptures, you don't go to church, you don't care, you don't pray, you don't confess your sins, you're not engaged at all. You're saved by the hairs of your chinny chin chin, just barely there, okay? Why would he bother you? You're unproductive, you're not making a difference, and you're telling nobody about it. It's after you have some position, some moment where you've made this commitment, some conviction overcomes you, some decision that you've made, some spiritual high. You come out of a worship service or you have a friend tell you something or you witness a, you know, a, a true like, miracle that God does and you just are absolutely certain you'll never go back. You won't turn from this moment ever again. Well, guard the door because he's coming. Just like Jesus standing in the waters, heavens open up, this is my son. Pretty big day. And right after, he's now off to be tempted. There's so many illustrations I could use to prove my point. I'm going to use one from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, you don't have to turn there. I'll just remind you of the story. It's the story about Elijah, the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And, and God's people, Israel, have done it again. They have wandered from God. The text actually says they're riding the fence. Kind of, I wish you'd play the one way or the other, but they're kind of following pseudo-God and following Baal, the false God. And, and so God sends Elijah to deal with the people. And so he says to Ahab, get the prophets out in the desert. Let's have a showdown. And so they call the prophets of Baal, some 450 prophets of Azareth, and there's about 400 of those guys. So you got to imagine, 850 men who speak for Baal, the false god. And, and all Elijah does is, is throw down a challenge. He says, okay, let's do this. Let's do this. We're all confused about who the real god is. Let's, let's put up or shut up. Let's build altars. Let's put an oxen on this altar, and you call down fire from your God, and I'll call fire down from the God, and we'll see. Sounded good to them? So they built an altar. They put the wood on the altar. They cut up the, the, the oxen. They put him on the altar, and the prophets started to dance and to pray and to ask their God to do something, to consume this, this sacrifice, and nothing happened. It's sort of a hysterical story because in the midst of it, I don't know what Elijah's doing if he's reclining on a rock watching the whole thing, but he starts to yell out taunts. Like maybe he's in the bathroom, yell louder. Like legitimately, maybe he's relieving himself is what he says. Maybe he's busy at some other event in the world and he's got bigger fish to fry, so keep yelling louder. Maybe he'll show up. And so they, in their fervor, they did what their customs would do. They would take out knives and cut themselves. And they're bleeding all over the place in their passion to kind of, I guess, prove how sincere they were. Nothing happened. The Bible says from morning until afternoon. That's what they did. 
And then Elijah steps up and says, okay, let's do it this way. And he, he builds an altar out of 12 stones to represent the tribes of Israel, the God's covenant to a people of covenant, this people who wanders from God consistently. He puts the wood on the, on the altar, cuts up the oxen, puts that on the altar, and he simply prays a very small prayer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it, but it was like Elijah said to, to God, God, show up and show off. Just do it. That's kind of all he said, and fire split the heaven, came down and consumed not only the oxen, the wood, but the stones. It vaporized the whole thing. Well, all the people, because all the people were surrounded around the prophets who were praying too, saw this, and they immediately figured it out. There's one God, and it isn't Baal. It's not him. And in that moment, Elijah says, go get those prophets. Let's deal with those guys. And so all those men were killed for their misleading of the God's people, right? Now, stop for a second. In the life and times of Elijah, I would think that's a big day. Wouldn't you? Like if Elijah was keeping a journal, that'd probably make it, don't you think? Today, God showed up and showed off. This is pretty cool. He burnt rocks. I haven't seen that before, but a really good day. You would think he'd be bulletproof, like immovable. He would be so strong and so courageous. He's just seen his God do the miraculous. The people believe. Everybody's repentant. They're all properly afraid of God at this point. And then the story twists a little bit, and it says that Jezebel, the queen, hears about this story and says, tell him, go tell Elijah that what he did to those prophets, I'm going to do to him. And as opposed to Elijah saying, well, bring it, bring it, I'm ready. He runs off and hides in a cave, afraid for his life. Now, I know that's an Old Testament story of a prophet that you maybe can't relate to, but we are just like that. Some moment where God shows up and shows off, he does amazing things in our lives, he's convicting us of sin, or we've seen some growth in our life, or he's answered some prayer, big things are happening, and, and then suddenly the adversary kind of suggests to us that maybe you should be afraid. And we duck and we, and we cover. I have a pastor friend of mine um, who is really, really geeked up on Saturday before he preaches, and he spends Monday in bed because he's so depressed. I, this is what God says. I can't wait to tell the people what God says. And as soon as he gets done, then he feels like I didn't say it right or it wasn't right, it wasn't good enough. And no, you know, all the attacks that come and I'm, now I'm depressed. Right at the moment of a high spot, we got the low spot. That's, that's the game he plays. And that's just, this is just a call to heads up. Satan doesn't leave you alone when you're strongest. He comes after you. If you're weak and ineffective, why bother? It's when you're pursuing him that he tries to derail you after some major moment in your life. Just a tip. I want you to notice another word in here that looks like, at first glance, a throwaway word. It's the location of this temptation, the wilderness. You see, it's mentioned in verse 12 and also in verse um, 13, the wilderness in 40 days where Jesus was. Now, when I think of wilderness, maybe you're like me. When I think of wilderness, I just think of someplace beautiful where there are no people, right? Like wilderness, Alaska, Montana, right? Someplace, my garage, someplace where there are no people, uh, beautiful. Um, but that's not the wilderness that Jesus was in. The, the, uh, Jerusalem was on a plateau. Dead Sea was some thousands of feet below it. And there's a space just before you get to the Dead Sea that the, the Israelites called the devastation. That was its name. 
because it was so barren. It was like a moonscape. Or maybe a better way to view it is, have you ever seen a mineral mine when it's been abandoned? It's colored like yellow, and it's kind of scaly and hard, and no plants whatsoever, and the ground is hollow in spots. It, sound, it makes a sound because of the mineral content and everything else. That's, that's the picture of where Jesus goes um, to deal with the temptation of, of Satan. Now, I understand that that is whatever. Uh, it sounds like an insignificant part of the story, but I believe it's fairly significant. In fact, I'm, I'm going to use it to make a point of comparison. And it's the comparison that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can just write that phrase, that, that address down if you want, but we're not going to turn there. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Adam as the first man and refers to Jesus as the second man. And there's some significant things, way more than just the life and times of Jesus happening in this narrative. There is backgrounds of depth, of theology, of truth that God is doing and for his people. So, so here's, here's why I want to mention it today, simply so that we understand those things. So let me just take a couple of minutes to briefly compare the first man and the second man, Adam and Jesus, as the, as the pictures describe him. And then we're going to get to this word wilderness as part of that comparison. First of all, um, Adam and Jesus... Both had a miraculous beginning, didn't they? God took the dust of the ground and formed a man and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living being. Pretty miraculous. Jesus, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Pretty miraculous. First man, second man. In comparison, they were both innocent and sinless, at least Adam in the beginning. They knew nothing of sin, had never experienced sin. They were innocent of this whole thing, and Jesus was a sinless man as well. Both of them are described in scriptures as humanity's head. In other words, Adam is the father of all mankind. No confusion there. If we back up our whole DNA chain, every one of us are related. Adam was our great, 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 times a thousand grandfather. And Jesus, according to scriptures, is the head of the redeemed. In fact, the scriptures in, in Paul's writing in Romans chapter 8 says he's the firstborn among many brethren. He is the beginning of our redeemed life. So the beginning of life, the beginning of redeemed life. Both give life. Adam, again, is natural. Jesus is supernatural. Both are, both are rulers. Adam was commanded by God, given by God, the task of dominion over created things. They're yours. Have dominion over them. The scriptures tell us that Jesus has dominion over all things. Both are, both are, are rulers. This is a funky way to see it, and I don't know a better phrase to say it, but I, I'll just say it um, the way I wrote it. Uh, their, their sleep produced a bride. Adam was caused to fall into deep sleep of which God took a rib out and formed woman, Eve, for his good. And Jesus, figuratively speaking, on the cross when he breathed his last he goes into spiritual sleep, as it were, death, and produce the bride of Christ, the beautiful bride of, of, of the Savior. And here's where these comparisons intersect in the story of Mark, and specifically this word. Both had a huge test. Remember the test in the garden? <laughs> Perfect place. I, I mean, I can't even picture how great it was, but everything you wanted, everything you needed. Perfect communion with God and relationship with God in context with him. And God says to Adam, Adam, knock your socks off. This is all for you, man. I love you. 
Just one thing before I go. That tree in the middle of the garden, that tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of that because if you eat of it, you will die. And thus begins the test. Really? I'll die? And you know we're going to get to this in a little bit. The adversary, Satan, comes in and suggests that somehow God is not telling the truth or he's holding out or doesn't have Adam's best interest at heart and, and plunges all of us, every person, man, woman, and child, into a condition called sin which messes up our mind and our hearts. We can't see God. We can't love God. We can't sort it out, and we can't fix it. We can't be good enough on our own. Religion won't fix it. The second man, uh, Jesus, um, went into a test in the wilderness here in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And I want you to see the, the way these things compare. Adam was tempted in the garden and lost. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness that Adam's failure condemned us all to, and he won. That's the differences. I thought about a way to make it clearer, so I picked two words. I'm certain there's way better ways to do this, but let me just use the word need and representative to describe what I think's going on here. First of all, need, and, and let me just say before I start talking in this category of thought, I'm connecting all of us to Adam. I'm going to use it in the same plural terminology. We are Adam. We have the same problem. We have inherited the problem. It's as if we were in the garden committing the, the sin that separated us from God. So that's how I'm going to phrase it, but here's what I mean by the word need. We are so weak. We are so frail, so shallow, so selfish that it didn't matter that we walked in a close relationship with God in, in the garden. It didn't matter that God made this perfect place for our joy and our uh, happiness. It didn't, didn't matter that uh, it was for our well-being or that he provided everything I'd ever want. It, it just didn't matter. When Satan came to suggest that God wasn't really for him, then here's what went down. Adam Therefore, us doubted the truth and believed the lie, and we followed the deceiver, and we went and hid from the creator who was for our good. Pretty brutal, right? Need exposed. In other words, you have a best-case scenario, everything as you could possibly want it, and we fell. Then you have this word representative. Again, the, the first man, the second man, Adam and Jesus. When Adam sinned, it re he represents us. His sin became our sin. We were born in, in sin because of that, separated from this closeness uh, of relationship to God that Genesis talked about, kicked out of the garden into the wilderness. And the way the Bible describes the wilderness after being removed from the garden is this world of brokenness, things not working the way they're supposed to work, where sickness and death and weeds and problem and sweat and all those things go into the struggle of life. That's the wilderness now because of sin humanity's been kicked out into. Jesus, the second man, was in a worst-case scenario. He was in a wilderness that was described as need, one, so hungry, 40 days without food, and alone. Totally different than Adam and Eve, who had everything and had company. This Jesus went into the wilderness with, with nothing. And he dealt with this temptation from Satan with faith and obedience and became victorious over him. And so it's pretty simple. What I want to see from this word, what I want you to see, is that the first representative, Adam, got us into this mess. And the second got us out of this mess, and our future is paradise. You see the, you see the sequence? We were in the garden, 
ended up in the wilderness only to have a future in glory. Amen? That's the wonderful picture here. In fact, I think it's so obvious that Luke in his account of this very same sequence of, of thoughts, in chapter 3, he plays out the baptism of Jesus just like the rest of the writers do. The same three events happen. This, this sky opens up, the heavens split or torn open. The voice from heaven comes and says, this is my son. The, the Spirit of God dwells on Jesus, right? And as soon as that happens... Where Mark runs immediately into this wilderness temptation, Luke starts a 16-verse genealogy, working from Jesus all the way to Adam, to tell this one basic truth, one basic story, the mess that Adam got us into, this second representative is getting us out of. And he goes right to the, right to the wilderness to bear what we couldn't bear. Do you see the connections of all those things? The mystery of it, the wonder of it? I, ho I hope you see that because I think it was powerful to me. And I had this moment this week when I was writing these things down that you always are stuck having to deal with what I think is important, okay? Like, a big deal to you. But anyway, it's important uh, to me. So um, this representative thing. There's another thing I want you to notice, and that is who did the leading and who did the tempting. Seems obvious, but I've got to make a point of it. Verse 12 says, the spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And in verse 13, it says that Satan did the tempting. And, and here's why I bring, bring this up. Because sometimes we can get confused about the role that God plays in our struggles. In fact, I've heard Christians confuse the terminology and suggest that somehow God is involved in the tempting business. I want to make this really, really clear. James makes uh, this statement in James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own evil desires. Here's why I think it's confusing when it comes to struggles. Because God does, according to Scripture, bring tests and trials to us, doesn't he? Isn't that what James says? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, right? Isn't that what he says, that God is involved in a trial situation? And, and the scriptures say that Satan almost always uses the same circumstance to, to work on temptation. Many times it's the same event. That's why it confuses us. It's the same event that God's trying to use for my good and, and for his glory and Satan twists it and I believe the lie and suddenly I'm farther away than I started and it's a, it's a temptation. Again, this is, this is how it works. God's intention with these trials or tests as the scriptures say it is to, to give us, and I call it this, the luxury of demonstrating love. Whenever there's a choice between obedience and disobedience, a love for God or love for self or whatever, at that moment, as difficult as that trial might be, God is saying, okay, there's a place. Tell me you love me. I call it the luxury of difficult choices to say, yeah, absolutely, I love, love you, and I'm going to reject that or say no to this because even though it has some lore to it, it isn't the real thing, and I... I'm choosing to express that I love. And then we also know what James says is that God uses these trials and, and struggles for our growth. God reveals the best in us and the worst in us. He reveals weaknesses that he's growing in us. It's, it's testing. And then ultimately, whenever it's done, whenever testing's done, there's the same theme in a Christian's life always. God shows his grace. Wherever it's not enough, wherever it comes up short, God overwhelms and superabounds with what we can't get anywhere else. Grace and mercy 
and love and forgiveness. So I think that's an important thing to remember, that don't be confused about who's doing what in this story. Same circumstance, if you choose to disobey, will produce a temptation that will bring defeat or a luxury of love that will prove your, your love of Christ. So, although um, Mark doesn't get into the specifics of the temptation uh, that uh, Matthew and Luke do, I do want to briefly go to Matthew's account. So if you want to turn to the left to chapter 4 of Matthew, I briefly want to point out what the struggles were because I think there's something uh, to mention before I've got some applications for you today. 11 verses here in chapter 4 that point out how Satan came after Jesus. They're similar to what we experience, and so let's let's unpack them. Here's the first one, verses 2 and 3. Here's the first temptation after Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days, and super hungry. He says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Sounds harmless, doesn't it? I mean, who would react to that? You're hungry? Time to eat. Here's the temptation. Fairly simple. The temptation was for Jesus to provide for his own needs apart from the will of his father. He knew why he was in the wilderness. He knew what he was there for. And Satan was suggesting that somehow he should go around his father to supply his his need. And and by the way, that that phrase, don't, don't miss that phrase, if you're the son of God, that's the first thing that Satan throws out there. I would imagine still ringing in the heavens and in Jesus' ears are the last voice from heaven he heard, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the first thing Satan brings out is, are you, are you really? If you're the son of God, then eat. Eat. Let me, let me stop for a second. That happens all the time to the church. There, there are people um, who are so defeated at this, they, they, can't, they can't even look up. And so let me try to encourage you with, with this story. Satan's number one attack on legitimate believers in Christ is to question God's faithfulness and affection for you. In fact, the Bible has lots of things to say about who we are in Christ. We're new creatures in Christ. We're, we're the sons and daughters of the king. We, we cannot be separated from God. We, we are not going to be condemned by God. These things are so much greater and so much grander than any failure you have or any feeling you have about your failure. And yet, as soon as you fall, Satan's right there to say, Christians don't do that, do they? Christians don't sin like that and confess 17 times this last week. Seriously, the same problem? You better start questioning. That isn't real. And he starts to question whether you're a son or a a daughter or or to play that role. I had somebody ask a question last hour, so let me just say it so we can clarify it. Satan doesn't have any more power than God allows. He's not omnipresent and omniscient. He isn't isn't all powerful. He He can't do whatever he wants to do, but he can do what God allows him to do. And I do know his agenda. Just like Jesus in the wilderness, that was his agenda, to to have Jesus doubt whether the Father was really for him. It's the same thing he does to us. Is he really for you? Does he really mean that stuff about grace and mercy? Has his blood so covered your sin that God really says what sin? Is it as far as the east is from the west, or is God keeping a file on you? Is he just going to switch it later and use it against you? I'm passionate about this. I think if the church fought harder for what God says about us than what we fall into or what we've done in our past, 
we'd be different people. We'd be a radically different place. Here's the second temptation, verses five and six. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The temptation this time was to demonstrate miraculous power apart from the will of God. D- do something, right? It's just another twisted tale by, by Satan. If Jesus said in the first temptation that I trust him, I'm not going to trust you, that I'm not going to meet my own needs apart from the will of the Father, man does not live by bread alone, then the first thing Satan says to him, you trust God? You really trust God? Okay, jump. If you're a truster of God, just get up on this high point. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere about protecting you? He grabs scripture and he twists some truth and suggests somehow that you can go ahead and go around the plan of God. And God did not plan Jesus to jump off the Temple Mount, and yet there was the temptation to question whether God was real, whether God was good, and whether, whether Jesus really trusted him. Here's the uh, third temptation, verses 8 and 9. And again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. This last temptation was huge. It was a suggestion by Satan to become king the easy way. Like Jesus, you could be a shortcut savior. You can avoid the pain. You can avoid the cross. You, you can go around ridicule and judgment. You can go, you can go around suffering and, and humiliation. You can go past sorrow and you just go right to kingship. I'll give you all these people. The entire world will worship you. You can go around the cross if you just bow down and worship me. That was the temptation. And here's how Jesus responded. Verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve that's powerful stuff there because those three temptations in category are the ways in which Satan attacks every believer of which Jesus won. And so we're going to make some point on this, but the, the text tells us what happens next, that there's, uh, Satan left him, defeated by the word, and angels came to minister to Christ. Now let me make a couple of so what observations, some takeaway um, when we look at the temptation of Christ. Here's the first one I don't want you to miss. We have the same adversary. You know that, right? He hasn't changed one bit. The same adversary. In fact, the, the, the writer Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. For Satan, it's game on. He can't be everywhere all the time. He's not omnipresent. He's not going to be doing all these things all the time, but when bad things happen, he's probably a part of it. And especially, going back to my other point, especially if you're doing well, so you can't ignore this reality. Don't play games with that spiritual reality. He is a prowler. He is trying to come after the church, and he does it in these ways. Here's, a, here's the second thing, and it fits in that category. Not only do we have the same adversary, we have similar temptations. John, when he wrote in, in 1 John chapter 2, these imperatives of, of what the church is not to love, he says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. And he talks about the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And I've paraphrased those three desires or these three wants as, as pleasure, stuff, and you. 
okay? If you really want to know what John is commanding the church to avoid is pleasures apart from God, stuff that satisfies, and your arrogant pride to try to run and control everything. That whole scenario of things is, is what John says to us as Christians, don't love that stuff. It's what everybody else loves. It's what they do. It's how they feel better about themselves. But we are not to do that. And so here's what Satan does. He can take even sometimes the good things and turn them into failure. As subtle as bread. How is bread when you're hungry bad? Ever. Ever. And all I'm trying to say to you is I don't know specifically how you're supposed to respond to these things, but you can't be naive to say that every good thing is just good in itself. You have to ask yourself the question, what is God's will in my life? And and in this situation, Jesus has the example that when Satan suggests for you to take care of you, that there is no God to watch over you, and you buy that lie and reject the one that he's the provider, then clearly you're doing the same thing. Satan takes our fears and says, you don't... You don't trust God because he can't be trusted. He's going to drop you. You can put yourself at risk for faith reasons, and and you better have some backup because you can't trust God, really, because he's not a promise keeper. And all these things he said about you and over you, I'm not certain he's committed to it. So you better better protect yourself and and guard yourself, and that's a lie from, from Satan, too. Here's another thing I want you to remember. We have the same adversary. We have the same temptations. We have the same tools to fight these temptations. Jesus used the word of God, the powerful word of God that Satan can't do anything with but submit. I guess that's true. He can take it and twist it like he tried with Christ, but when you deal with the truth, he is defeated. We have the same spirit of God living in us, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? And so we are not fighting without... uh, Weapons that work. We have prayer. We have faith. Faith, by the way, is a work of God. He's the one sustaining it, and he's the one using it, and so it's all him. And then let me finish with one last thought so that you could just get the power. But I had one person in the 8 o'clock service suggest to me that he didn't like the order. He was saying, could you have done that first? That was the big punchline. So I'm sorry. I'm doing it at the end. It's a cliffhanger. It's great. Um, here's the last point. We have a Savior who truly understands not a little bit, but far deeper than we do. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, some suggest it was the Apostle Paul, it sounds like Paul, but who knows, says some really profound things about the proximity of Jesus to our struggles and to our conflict and to our tendencies. And this is what he says, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, therefore he... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins. That's a sacrifice of atonement, sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter four, a little bit farther down in that letter, it says in verses 15 and 16, for we do not have, listen very carefully, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. So here's what I've learned from Hebrews. Hebrews. Our Savior got really close. 
We don't have a Savior who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have one who can't understand why things are attractive at certain times and not at others. We don't have a Savior who doesn't understand this kind of heart monitor spiritual life. Good days, bad days, good days, bad days. He understands the the fight according to what Hebrews says. And he sympathizes and he cares about it. And let me just suggest to you, God does not see our spiritual life in the sequence of time that you do. God, before the foundations of the world, set his grace and mercy on you if you love Christ, and all of your sin, past, present, and future is covered in the blood of Jesus, and he says there's no more judgment to it, okay? So he does not wake up tomorrow in your failure and go, man, I am so disappointed with you. How could you, after all these years, how could you do that? Because you see, everything that we've struggled with, everything we fight, of all, all of our tendencies, were understood sacrificed for and covered in Christ. And when he said he was finished, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't kidding. Now, here's, here's the profound, again, more profound part of this. The scriptures say that he provides for our weaknesses. There is victory in Christ, and watch this. Even when there's failure in you, there's victory in Christ. Even when there's failure in you, there are two words, these wonderful, wonderful words. I call them the magic words of our faith in Christ. There is mercy and there is grace. Amen? When you can't and when you didn't a thousand times, he does not treat you the way you deserve. He treats you with mercy and grace for a time of need. Amen? Amen, church? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. God, I thank you for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you for his sympathy and his understanding and the temptation that he went through so that he could get close to our mess to be the faithful high priest. God, would you apply to our hearts today the certainty of our conversion because of the absolute perfect sacrifice of our Savior. God, I pray that we would leave today to... Uh, Know the word of God, speak the word of God, and trust in the spirit to pray, and then when all else fails, love your grace and mercy that covers a multitude of sin. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.